Greetings and salutations, and welcome to the Future of Law, Good Lawyers podcast series dedicated to exploring what is and what could be when it comes to the business of law and how we as lawyers can improve access to legal services for everyone. Each week, we interview thought leaders in the legal profession on how lawyers can evolve with the times and ultimately live more fulfilled lives. On the show this week, we are thrilled to have back on one of our favorite guests, Nathan Hebel. Nathan is a lawyer and a director of the law firm HBA Legal based out of Sydney, Australia. Nathan comes back on to discuss how Australians do law a little differently. In Canada, in order to own or be a partner at a law firm, you have to be a lawyer yourself. This is not the case in Australia, where non-lawyers are permitted to own law firms and can participate in running the business. Our conversation covers a lot of ground, including the advantages of having non-lawyers own and help run law firms, and why regulations in Canada should change to allow for more choice in determining a firm's structure, the difference between the business of law and the practice of law, and why distinguishing between the two when it comes to running a firm is critical, the existential risks posed to law firms who continue to resist innovation, the importance of value-based billing instead of the traditional billable hour approach, and Nathan even offers some fantastic advice to all of you law students out there. Nathan never fails to disappoint, balancing his critiques of our current model with empathy and hope for a brighter future. If you want to hear more from Nathan, be sure to check out his podcast, Pardon My Objection, where he, alongside one of our previous guests, Mitch Kowalski, challenges many of the accepted traditions in the legal profession. All right, that is it for me. Please enjoy today's discussion. Nathan, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you very much for getting up early and joining us today. How's everything going in Australia? You guys, it's a complete pleasure to be here. Great to hear you both. Great to see you both. Uh, look, let's not talk about what's happening in Australia because we're back in lockdown with COVID, but we're getting vaccinated down here uh, at a rapid rate and looking to be out by summer. So I think the more interesting thing to talk about today is what you guys have got to talk about. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, I think really what we'd like to chat with you Uh, today is that as some of our listeners may know, Australia has a different legal system than what is found in North America. Well, just to critique that a little bit, I'd say a different regulatory environment for lawyers. You you think of about a bunch of different types of civil law versus common and all these things. And Australia is actually very similar to Canada in terms of the type of legal system it has, but the way that it regulates lawyers is very different. You know, we have the same queen as you guys as well. So (laughs) We do. <laughs> is it as a fact? Yes. Yeah, yeah. No, no, there are there are a number of similarities in terms of the substantive law, but a huge amount of difference, as you say, in terms of the way that we can structure the business of running law firms. So maybe uh, could you just take us through a, a bit of those differences? Again, I know you're well versed on this, and so maybe just tell us what is different from the way we regulate law firms in the legal profession in North America mm-hmm. versus how it's done in Australia. Look, at its core, in Australia, we moved quite a time ago now to a a model that allows investment from entities that are not individuals. So there's no requirement in Australia that every law firm must be a partnership. Uh, We can have structures in place that mean companies can invest in law firms. We We have structures in place that mean that 
individuals can have a company that invests in a, a law firm. Um, and that, to me, is quite a significant difference to uh, the Canadian model, the model in New Zealand, uh, and the model in a number of other parts of the world, where, of course, that those models require it to be a partnership. Uh, those models require it to be majority owned by individual lawyers. Uh, there is some obvious room to move when it comes to family trusts and the, interestingly, the allocation of money when it comes to these things. So it's not as if these jurisdictions haven't thought through that there's a complexity of model that could be applied because they allow ownership by a family trust. At its core, I think what those models are saying is we only can trust that individual lawyers should own law firms. And in Australia, we don't have that approach. We have an approach that says, hey, lawyers, individual lawyers can own law firms. We still have the traditional model. There's lots of sole practitioners running around doing great work. There's lots of partnerships running around doing great work where they divvy up the money at the end of every year, pay each other, close the books and move on to the next year, which we know is the way the partnership model works. But there is space and it's acceptable in Australia to have a corporatized model. Right. Now, you've been in the past a little bit critical of the partnership only model that is popular in, in Canada. Can you just kind of go over some of your objections yeah. or some of your concerns about that uh, alone? I'll tell you what I'm critical of. I'm critical of the, the, the failure of regulatory authorities to allow choice. Because to me, I think that if a bunch of people wanted to have a partnership model, good luck to them. It's not my job to criticise them or make comment on the way that they want to run their business. But where I do lay challenge down to regulatory authorities is to be a little more broad-minded and a little more trusting with respect to the way that uh, an incorporated model uh, or an incorporated legal practice might help the end customer who's receiving the legal services. Because oftentimes we see in a partnership model, particularly in relation to uh, more voluminous practices where there's a lot more work, um, investment in efficiency pays dividends. Investment in efficiency means the clients get a better outcome. But when you are clearing the books out every year right. and you don't have any retained earnings to invest because that's not, the model doesn't allow that, it's really hard to invest in things that the firm needs to do that might pay off in five years. So from my point of view, I, I am, I am 100% supportive of the sole trader, sole practitioner model. I'm 100% supportive of the partnership model. But my criticism and my challenge is to say, what about the other bit what, that, that's, that's working so successfully around the world? Yeah, and I mean, successfully in the legal space, specifically in places like Australia, where the corporate vehicle hasn't destroyed the profession like some people fear it will here in Canada, but also just looking at the success of the corporate vehicle in every single industry. There is a reason you you were alluding to this many times in the last minute or two, the dumping of the all the earnings at the end of the yeah. year and emptying the coffers, partner draws, and then starting back at zero. And it's always felt to me like 
being part of a partnership. And I, I mean, I saw it in the context of a big firm was kind of like a lease on space as opposed to a true ownership that would have benefits lasting as long as the company would last for. Because when you reach your retirement age, which is forced at a lot of the big shops for sure, and you're out, there's no more room to benefit from all the work, investment, innovation that you might've put forth while you were there. And, and that's all it is. The reality of it is, at its core, a partnership really is a rent on space, as you say, because of the structure of it. They share secretarial support. They, they'll, they'll kick into a kitty or a pool in relation to marketing, whatever else it might be. There might be a, a loose association of firms that sit in different provinces in Canada. In, in Australia, we have states. And that has worked so well. But what the market is doing, what lawyers are saying, what a new generation of people is saying is, hey, me getting my fistful of money at the end of each year when the partner draws are allocated, that's not enough for me. And for a lot of people, that's really hard to understand that somebody comes and says, I want to invest my life into a career that fulfills me. And the dollar sign that I get at the end of the day is not my measure of whether I'm happy or not. A lot of people won't understand that. And perhaps they need to listen to more of your podcasts in order to understand it or switch off now because <laughs> this isn't going to make them happy. Because to me, what I'm saying is we, we want more and the partnership model in the law firm context for you guys in Canada isn't going to let you have more. It stops you. It restricts you. Whereas in the Australian context, we get more and we're able to make decisions in relation to the business of running law, not the practice of law, different thing. We're able to make decisions in relation to the business of running law practices that mean that investments can be made on the long term. Right. And I think that you're hitting on a really interesting point and one that you can speak to, Brett, because that distinction that you just made there between the practice of law and the business of law is something that you tried to change in, a, in one way or the other when we were working at uh, the big firm. And you ran pretty much headlong into a brick wall. I was not very successful at changing the machine from the inside. And that's been our sort of entire focus from day one. And that's a line that I use often when I'm talking to lawyers and other folks is good lawyer focuses on the business of law. So lawyers can spend more time being lawyers and the regulatory environment here is not super conducive to building a corporation in the legal space, mm -hmm. certainly not as conducive as it would be in Australia. And we might have to talk to you about who's going to start good lawyer Australia one of these days. <laughs> I want to pull it back to your comment about the regulator and the failings there. Just yesterday, talking about the benefits of a corporate structure on a webinar that we're putting on for startups and entrepreneurs across Canada. And it's almost ironic that we can't take advantage of those same benefits that we're telling these entrepreneurs about when they're thinking about starting their own business and why we push most entrepreneurs into incorporating. And then when you look at the regulator and we've got, you know, just pulling from the Clio legal trends report, 77% of legal needs going unmet in North America. How can we maintain the status quo it's disappointing uh it's incredibly disappointing because it is, it is so short-sighted in relation to uh, the failure to make sure that those needs are met by lawyers so here's the irony the regulatory piece 
generally speaking, is run by lawyers, right? In Canada. Yep. Yeah. Presumably, they're saying, well, you know what? We think that the structure we've got works because it protects a few things. It protects the way that the law is practiced. It protects our lawyers in relation to their earning a living and providing their services. And it makes sure that the right people, as in lawyers, are doing the job. But here's the thing. Tech companies aren't interested in any of that. What tech companies are interested in is servicing the 77% of people whose needs are not being met. And they're not going to wait. (laughs) And so what they'll do is they'll find a way. Now, it may well be that the regulatory authorities in Canada have a special stick that says, well, we'll make sure that you can't do that because you can't hold yourself out as being a lawyer, okay? And they can make rules to keep protecting it and keep putting walls up. But I don't know of anything in the world, in the commercial world, that has been successful on the basis of keeping that out in terms of a good idea or servicing such a huge portion of the population who have a need. Because I think the world, interestingly, has moved on from the great, and it's a shame, but that the world's moved on from these great ideals that law firms used to, in fact, service that, that full gamut. Because, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, law firms were a very different place where they would actually accept instructions from somebody off the street <laughs> or they, they, they would have a, a, a more varied practice where they, they, they have different areas, whereas the movement towards a more specialised practice of particularly the larger law firms who do corporate work and commercial work and other things has resulted in a limitation on the amount of instructions they can take. Individual partners are told, no, you can't do that work. Yeah. So, okay, who's going to do it? Well, the answer is at the moment, no one. But the answer in five years, in 2025 and 2030, is if we don't embrace this and we don't find a way to invest in technology driven by lawyers, then other people are going to do it. Living in a cave, if you think that you can just shut up the doors and pretend that nothing is going on outside. <laughs> Lawyers seem particularly adept at doing that, though. And I guess that kind of leads in, unless there's anything else, but that leads into kind of my second question is what, what keeps this merry-go-round going? Because it's interesting to me, and this is anecdotal, but I'm looking at all the people that I graduated with and, and around that uh, age group. And it seems like most of the people who started at a big firm have either left or have some serious doubts about their long-term success in that type of environment. And you would think that law firms would take note of this and potentially change, but that doesn't seem to be the case, at least not yet. So I'm kind of curious, what are the fears here? How is this going? And I I guess the simple answer would be that the the decision makers have no incentive to change. And I'm sure that that's a big one. Yeah. And and fears, or if you you, you just looked at it from a different lens, justifications, like what are the arguments that are being made to maintain the status quo? Because we want to shine a light potentially at the end of the tunnel, looking at the Australian experience and dispelling some of those fears or objections. I think it would help all the listeners if we could articulate what exactly are the objections, the arguments, why we need to maintain this, you know, what we're discussing today feels like a backwards model. 
Well, I think in the Canadian context as well, I, I do know a lot more about Australia than Canada, of course, but the thing that I think listeners want to know is that there is a light at the end of the tunnel and that it's not an oncoming train. <laughs> because I think a lot of people who sit in law firms, it is in fact an oncoming train when they express interest or they express uh, a genuine will to make a change. I was uh, quite literally told to keep my ideas to myself. Yeah, and, and so whilst there might be publicly, well, of course we're interested in talking about these things, it, that is not light at the end of the tunnel. That's an oncoming train. Uh, so I think first things first, yes, and I know in other podcasts I've been more controversial in saying, well, who's making the decisions here? And it's not a very diverse bunch. And so that those people who are making decisions in the sort of the upper echelons of these law firms at the top of the tree are, are people who, who have a short-term horizon in relation to their investment. Exactly. And, 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 and also are, are people, and I'm, I am making a generalisation here, I am, but this is a great podcast and people tune in because they want to hear some controversy. But, but I think it's that cohort of people who say, I've, I've gone through this myself. It's been really hard for me to get here. Anybody else behind me, that's their problem. Um, I'm just going to feather my nest and I'm going to make sure that when I retire, I've got enough that I can sail off into the sunset, you know. And to the extent that lawyers are people who have one door closed, they just move through the next door to find the next profitable client that they can bill hourly rates to. And people who listen to this podcast are probably not those kinds of people, but maybe the partners they're working for might be. I don't know. Uh, it, it, but that's not what we want to get to. What we need to get to is a genuine value-driven model that clients get value for money. And clients want this. Clients need this. Part of the language of being in a corporatized environment is understanding the way the clients tick. So when you act for big corporates, they want people who understand their needs internally um, and their pressures internally and what makes their business tick and what makes them get their bonus and what makes their shareholders get greater value for money. If you've got a law firm coming in to say, hey, we're really great at what we do and we're going to charge you an hourly rate and the longer it takes, the more money we get paid and that's the way it is, then that's so often not consistent with what that corporate environment needs to make a success out of it. Now, what does that corporate environment do? They say, we don't like this, but what other option do we have? Right. What other option do we have? In my opinion, that is not a long-term position because what the clients are saying is we don't like this, okay? That's where it should stop because the clients should then say, we don't like this, we're going down the road. At the moment, there is no down the road. In Australia, at the moment, there really is limited down the road, can I put it that way? Because this is a long road that people need to move down. And so in Australia, we still have many instances where the hourly rated model, the sort of hybrid of a partnership and corporate model still operates in terms of clients not getting the best value for money. But, but what we're working towards is making sure that we shift that thinking so that it is a more corporate conversation between an entity or a, or, a, or a customer that requires legal services and somebody else. Take the medical profession as a direct example. They're allowed to be corporatized. 
they're allowed to do these sorts of things in terms of parts of the way that the medical uh, profession works. And so there are parts of, of the delivery of health services that have been corporatized. Now, I think the reason for that is because what the medical profession realized was that, hey, we can't be at our best if we don't allow for uh, investment in a service delivery model that isn't going to pay off in the first year. Take vaccines as an example. Take all sorts of big machines that cost lots of money as a way of an example. And so I, I think that, uh, well, you know, there's obviously lots of failings in the medical profession. One, one of the things that I think they do get right is that it's not a one-size-fits-all kind of you will not have a corporatized structure. Regulators of law firms get that wrong when they don't offer choice to people. Right. Because what, what we need to be able to do is walk and chew gum when it comes to the way that services to end users are delivered. Without question. Yeah, and I think you nailed it. To me, it all seems, and the corporation being a vehicle for this as well, short-term to long-term horizons. To me, that seems like it's the core piece, coupled with the billable hour model, which is just, in my view, lazy. But the short-term incentives that the partnership model provides as compared to the long-term incentives that a corporation would provide. Like to me, it's just, it's that simple. In the pandemic last, in the first pandemic hit in Australia last year, many, many big law firms laid good people off. They then had their best profit year. Okay, so that, don't get me started on that. That's the, that's the second part. But, but the point that I want to make about them laying people off is this. There'd been a number of royal commissions and a big need for legal services from government and corporate Australia in the year before, okay? But they did pretty well. And lots of hours were spent by good lawyers, associates, other people who aren't at the partner level to deliver those services to the client. And money was charged and, and the service was delivered. Now, when those clients spent that money, my view is that they would have taken the view, well, this is an investment that we're making because what we, we, we are spending money on this, but next time we need this service, we're going to have people who have been through the battle with us or been through this issue with us. And so we build corporate knowledge. We do those sorts of things. Right. But because of the, the partnership model and the fact that they were staring down potentially having a problem in terms of allocating partnership profits that would have been less than the previous year, instead of just sticking with their people and having a retained earnings balance from which they could dip to support and smooth that off, they stood those people down. They, they said to those people, no, you can go and we'll pay you for three days, but you've got to work for five. They laid secretaries off who, are, who make a major contribution to the ongoing work that gets produced, those people often have more knowledge than some of the lawyers in relation to the way things work. And so my point is that that's not success when it comes to what the client needs for a long-term investment, because when those lawyers got sacked, that client, not the law firm, that client lost its investment. Yeah. What gets me going about it is that that connection isn't always made by a client when they spend money with a law firm in terms of the stickiness of the people to the law firm. And to my mind, when tenders come out and contracts are negotiated, there should be a lot more focus put on, well, what are your policies in relation to the retention of people? 
What are your policies in relation to achieving gender equity? What are your policies in relation to diversity within your business of decision makers and people who are working? Because all of those things, uh, what does your reconciliation action plan look like? Because all of those things are the key things that keep people working within that law firm. And that helps the client because the client then gets a sense of comfort around the long-term investment. Now, a major part of that in my mind is that the the, the business structure of the law firm needs to encourage that longer-term investment. If you've got a partnership model where the profits need to be flushed out at the end of each year, then there's a massive disincentive to do that. Do you think clients care about all that though? Or do you think that they just care about getting the job done for a reasonable price and that it's good? Do you, do you think that they actually take that kind of holistic view? Is that the sense that you're getting? Look, I think that first of all, some clients, many clients do care about that and that's shining through. But secondly, I think the clients that don't think they care about that stuff, when they get the bill, they start to scratch their head and wonder why this is happening and then they care about it. Okay, because not a lot of people are doing what we're doing, which is to honestly talk about it and shine a light in the corner, as as we're saying. And so whilst there's a scratching of the head around how did I get this bill, how did this work out this way, there's then not a lot of honesty going back and forth, which is, well, here's the answer. It's because you have engaged a business that is incentivized to charge an hourly rate. The longer it takes, the more money we get paid. And at the end of every year, we flush our profits out, out to the partners and start from scratch again. A lot of the time, there's an assumption made by, by corporates and, and also the general community who consume legal services that lawyers know best. Yeah, that's one of the great privileges of being part of this profession, that you can stand at the bar table and as an admitted practitioner, when you speak, what you say is taken as being fact. That, that's one of those great privileges of being a lawyer that we should all value and cherish, okay? But this is the difference between the practice of the law and the business of the law that we talk about, okay? Because when it comes to the business of the law, to my mind, there needs to be a lot more, a lot more energy put into examining how the return is happening in terms of the client investing the money and what the law firm's giving back. Absolutely. And we've touched on a lot of the ways in which a more open model for lawyers that permits things that apart from an LLP benefits the client. What I'd also love to touch on, though, is how does it benefit the lawyer? Because we do have a regulated monopoly. On average, lawyers you know, make a fair bit of money. Not all of them, certainly, especially in some of those smaller settings. But on average, certainly making more than most, how do we persuade our fellow lawyers that moving this direction is in fact to their benefit? Great question. I I think it's a superb question. And it really is where all of this discussion is leading that we've been building up to. Because to me, it's about two things. It's about making sure that the lawyers that want to feel differently about the way they make a contribution with their time, how we can motivate them, and give them some hope and give them some light at the end of the tunnel. And secondly, it's about making sure that the clients who have the need get the service. Right. Now, there are so many advantages that come from being part of 
uh, an LLP, as you put it, uh, an incorporated legal practice that just can't be driven by a, a partnership model. And to me, those opportunities come through ensuring that investment in the law is real and it happens. And by investment in the law, what I'm talking about is investment in digital, investment in technology, investment in making sure that the time that gets put in by a lawyer each day to the piece of work that they're doing is directed at their skill rather than putting time on a timesheet, okay? Now, again, to me, the way I think about a piece of work that a lawyer is doing is that there are lots of different parts as to how that piece of work happens and comes together. And the way that the traditional partnership model operates is that because we're on an hourly rate and because everyone's got a timesheet to put in and because we have to satisfy the pyramid structure, what we must do is make sure that we all record our time. And, oh, if it takes a bit longer, it takes a bit longer. Make sure you put all your time down there, okay? And so that's that model of operating. But let's just put that to one side for a second and say, is it the best way of operating? Because what specialised lawyers know and, and, and people who've been to law school and are uh, moving through the ranks need to have hope about is that you're not just a person who turns up every day in order to be a machine that puts time on your timesheet, okay? And so the way of doing that, to my mind, is to start to unpack what we do every day and allow for there to be more, um, say, digital operations or digital investment into parts of that work. So stage number of, of 10 stages of doing, say, a, a workers' comp matter, to, to take as an example, stage number one, four, and eight needs to be done by a lawyer with expertise because they need to look at these things carefully. But an investment in good digital and technology might mean that with the scraping of data, you know, as we move down the AI path, as we move through things, what we can create is a digital environment that auto-populates stages three, four, you know, six, whatever number I'm, I'm giving as an example, I'm making it up in that sense. Uh, and so to me, what that allows lawyers to know is that they can have genuine work-life balance, okay? Because they're not required to then be a slave to their timesheet and do eight hours a day or whatever it might be, but rather genuinely deliver good value to clients. <laughs> and, and what the client gets is the right service because that has to be a given. The client needs to have good expertise and they have to have great service and they need to get where they need to be. But my experience with clients is they don't mind how the sausage gets made. They just want the sausage. And so what clients say is we'll pay you a fixed fee, we'll pay you a staged fee, we'll pay you a retainer, we'll pay you in, in whatever way you want. We just need to make sure we're getting good value for money and we're getting the product. And so when you move away from the hourly rate machine of billing, and, and, and I think you need a corporatized model to do that, okay, what you get is a more evolved view of the way that we deliver value to clients, which frees up lawyers' time to do other things right? and to be more adventurous with their thinking. Love all those points. I don't agree that you need the corporate vehicle to eliminate 
the billable hour approach because before law school as a contractor, I was a sole mm. proprietor and we fix feed every job. If I ever came into someone's house and said, you know, we could fix this, mm. I'll let you know how much it costs when I'm done. I would have never booked a job. So the move to fixed fee services to me can start at for the solos, which is what obviously we specialize here at Good Lawyer, but it should absolutely continue moving its way up. And I love the analogy of the different stages and you can cut and expedite pieces that don't actually need lawyer time. But I would argue that stage zero is the biggest stage. And that is purely the business of law. How do I find clients? How do I build clients? How do I keep up with my clients and just, you know, do some general customer support? These items that for the solo and small firm practitioners, and again, this is just pulling directly from that Clio report, eat up three quarters of their week if you can include discounts and write-offs. And so to me, it's mm -hmm. like, if we can just connect all of these hungry, good lawyers from everywhere with the people who need their help and you give them an upfront price, so much workflow is going to come into our industry, which is only tapping into a fraction of the legal needs out there. And it just leaves both parties with a better taste in their mouth. Because even from my perspective as an associate back in the day, it didn't feel good to be, you know, every point one trying to track those was frustrating yeah, to do, but also just like you almost had to disassociate from the final price yeah. because it would be hard for me to ever imagine paying for myself to make the sausage in the way that we are making it. Look, I think it's a very fair challenge. What I would say, though, is that, yes, the partnership model can deliver a fixed fee model and give better value for money. But to my mind, it's the lawyer that does that that bears the risk. Yes. And it's very expensive very expensive to properly invest in the technology and the digital that I'm talking about to make it work in a way that can be uh, mass produced. And to me, it's, it's that investment. It's that investment that, that needs to be made that is, that is almost impossible to make as a small operation with the right ideals, absolutely, but without the financial and corporate backing of saying, hey, we're going to invest in this. We're going to put the right people in here to make sure that we deliver on digital in that law firm experience. And lots of the bigger law firms are talking about delivering on digital, but what they're doing is buying one license to something that somebody else has developed. And, and, and it's not my bag to talk today. There are lots of other great people you can get on the podcast, of course, and you have had on the podcast, talk about digital and the things that can be done. My, my, my point, though, is that, that we need to free up the structure of law firms. The regulators need to free up the structure of law firms to allow for there to be an investment by those tech companies even or by corporate Canada or corporate wherever globally to make that investment and then get a return, <laughs> okay? Because let's not be naive here. What people, what other organizations need to see when they make an investment in a law firm is a return. Right. Okay. Um, they're not doing this out of the kindness of their heart, and nor should they. They need to get their return as well. And, and, and that can be done. There's no doubt about that. Uh, but it can't be done where you've got a regulator that says, no, we will not allow anyone other than a, a partner of a law firm to be an owner. 
Well, and, and kind of to your point there, I agree in the sense that the firm we worked at, there's like 130, 140 lawyers, something like that. In but our office. In our, in our office. 750 across the, across the country. Yeah. So it was a bigger one. But everyone was sort of on their own island in the sense that, yeah, we were a firm, but nobody worked together. And I think the only unifying factor was that you better bill. And I'll give you an example is this something you've brought up many times, Brett, is that we couldn't even get lawyers to train us to show us how to do things because they were so focused uh, and, and fair enough, everything, all the incentives in the partnership were around the billable hour. And if you got it X amount, then you did well. And if you didn't, uh, then you did poorly. And to your point, there was no real emphasis on value. Of course, there was an assumed emphasis in the sense that your client would fire you if you didn't do a good job, but it was how many hours that was like the first, second, third, and fourth criteria. But maybe just let me ask you this then. To someone who put it to you, say, okay, well, there's some concerns about switching over to something like what Australia is doing, potentially investment in a law firm. It, you know, you could see the deterioration of the quality of work. You could see the profit motive taking over and we can't control this. Right now, we know that the, everyone's gone to law school, they're top quality, they can deliver these services. If we start deregulating, I mean, look out. Is there the any- Non-lawyers can't be trusted. Yes, exactly. Is there any credence to that? I think the first thing I would say is, is it really working at the moment? (laughs) Thank you. Yes, no. (laughs) I mean, you know, when we talk about, well, is quality going to drive down? We've just talked about first, second, third and fourth being entering time on a timesheet. So, okay. And so to me, I guess we start from a very low base of genuine value being delivered to a client when it comes to the way that those services are packaged up. So that, that's the first thing. The second thing I would say is, again, uh, we, and, and, and it's, it bears repeating, there's a big difference between the business of law and the practice of law. And lawyers that work in our firm, which is a, a, a corporate structure, they are people of the highest integrity. They are people who are experts in their field. They are people with a great diversity of a background, of thinking, and they're really great people to work with. <laughs> That's not in order. <laughs> and so to me, I find it a little offensive, to be honest. If somebody comes to me and says to me, well, the people that are going to work for a law firm that might have a corporate investment in it are somehow going to do the bidding of that corporate and trash all of their good values that exist. And uh, somehow they're going to morph into something that isn't a good lawyer. I think the good lawyers are the ones that recognize this opportunity. I think the good lawyers are people who say, yeah, I want a piece of that. I want to have flexibility in my work. I want to give better value to clients. I want to make sure that we invest in the long term into service, service delivery that thinks outside the box. I want to make sure that I have an opportunity to invest in technology. I want to make sure that I work in a business that I can have some diversity in what I do around saying, well, I work in a corporate environment. That corporate environment encompasses more than just law firm. Maybe I can go and do some time over here for 12 months or maybe my junior lawyers can do a rotation through other parts of our business. I think all of those things, when you stack that up, and you start listing them off, that they far outweigh the risk 
of doing nothing and living in the cave. So when you look at the ledger and you start to stack up the opportunities that exist for changing the model and you look at staying in the cave, to my mind, there's only one choice. Now, I'm not saying it's perfect. I'm not saying there's not going to be examples out there of things that happen that are not the right thing. There's always a few bad eggs that exist. There's no changing that, but this is not the point of the discussion. The point of it is because the law societies will still be able to regulate those people. It's not as if we're saying that because it's an incorporated legal practice or an LLP, that all of a sudden that environment gets carved out, that organisation gets carved out and is somehow treated separately. Not at all. The lawyers that work in the law practice, as opposed to the business of the law practice, still have their obligations to act in the way that they do and are still subject to regulation by the law society. Mm. What's the problem here? (laughs) What is the real problem here? Is it that it's a closed shop? Is that the problem here? Is it? I mean, I'd like to not think so. I'd like to think that the people who sit on making these decisions are people who have a forward-thinking focus and want to protect the future of the legal profession and leave it in a better state than the way that they found it. It'd be nice to think that those things are happening. And so perhaps it is a little bit of, you know, we're scared of the unknown. But come down to Australia, talk to us about our experience and look to other regions to understand. The UK, for example, have have, have a similar system. Um, Other parts of the world have a similar system that allows that to happen. And so uh, perhaps take a broader horizon in relation to it rather than just thinking about the negativities. Because I think what happens is as each year goes on and the more discussion we have about this, the list of opportunities and the list of pros just gets bigger and the list of cons stays exactly the same, if not diminishes. Absolutely. And, and I, I love that perspective on it because we're not trying to convince lawyers to be these altruistic angels. We're talking about self-interest and benefiting from taking a different tact, trying to mm-hmm. offer services in a way that more people want to buy them, mm-hmm. you know, respecting that privilege that you talked about that, you know, I think we've all experienced who have been practicing lawyers, where if you're at the bar, people listen to you and, you know, acknowledging that privilege, but then also, and I'm pulling this right from Mitch, your co-partner on pardon the objection, which we should have been mentioning throughout this podcast today, but being humble and being humble enough to know that lawyers aren't good at everything. And in fact, your average lawyer is not great at business. Mm -hmm. I fancy myself pretty good at business, better than I was as a lawyer, which is why I'm running the business and not practicing as a lawyer, because that's what I'm all about. But the fact that there seems to be this illusion, delusion in the (laughs) profession that only lawyers know how to run a law firm is not being humble. It's not being humble at all. And I think it's to the detriment of literally everybody. Well, and increasingly, if you take that one step further, even within the part, even within the law firms, it's only the the sacred cows who know how to run the law firm, according to them. Yeah, It's just the partners. And what the partners are busy doing is climbing up the ladder and then working as quickly as possible to pull the ladder up from behind them so that no one else can come up. And because this is mine now, 
And I've worked hard to get here and I found a way to get up to the sacred cow or immunity challenge level or whatever you want to call it. (laughs) And so therefore, I I am now one of the few who, because of my title, knows how to run this business. It's a complete fallacy. And it's not a criticism of people. I mean, you know. It's not. It's really not. On a podcast, we, we, we really should get the psychiatrists in to explain the, the psyche behind this. And it's not fair on these guys, to be, to be honest, to have a bit of sympathy for a minute because what they're ex- expected to do is to be the all-singing, all-dancing human being who can be in court in the morning and at lunchtime marketing to a client and bringing in new business in the afternoon, making de- challenging decisions about employee relations and, and, and promoting or performance managing staff. In the evening, going and doing some recreation to, to maintain their physical health and then being an all-around great parent. It's just an unrealistic expectation of these guys but, but, and guys and girls. I, I don't, I don't, it's not a gender comment. It's, a, it's of these people. Yeah. And so I, I, I think there's a great unfairness in relation to it and I have some sympathy for them. Uh, wow. and but we but, could go all day on the gender issue too, because all of these features more intensely impact women in law firms more than men, because there's just not on its face as there's going to be gaps in the earnings and they're worried about the partner draws. They're not worried about the long term, and retaining some of the best lawyers in their roster because they're not amenable to to yeah. change or the 80 hour work week yeah it's this way yeah. or the highway and that you know benefit to good lawyer because we're picking a lot of yeah. these terrific <laughs> women up who find that good lawyer fits into their complicated and busy lives yep. in a way that a traditional law firm never could let me give let me have a plug here uh, an unashamed plug we did a great podcast with Libby Lyons on pardon my objection and if people want to hear more discussion about that topic please go to the Pardon My Objection uh, podcast because Libby talks precisely about this point and she is a wonderful Australian who has made a great contribution over many years to gender equity. And she wrote, I don't don't want to rehash them because we don't have time, but she raises some excellent points around that. Um, And the whole, (laughs) my, my, my analogy about the ladder being pulled up behind was Libby's analogy that she raised in the podcast. Because one of the questions that I asked her a bit controversially was, hey, sometimes it's women treating other women badly. What are you going to say? That'd be controversial, yeah. (laughs) What'd she say? And she and she talked about that. And she talked about the fact that yeah, absolutely. Some some women who are partners treat more junior women quite badly and often worse than the guys. And are busy pulling, you know, that they've moved their way up the ladder with a great degree of difficulty. And instead of putting a hand down to help people up, they're putting a hand down to pull the ladder up from behind them because they're there now. And look, it's, it, it is interesting and, again, controversial, but it's just one of those things that we need to talk honestly about. Well, we're going to have to get Libby on yeah, uh, the absolutely. future of law. Well, as... Mm-hmm always happens the hour passes very fast and i know you have uh, you're just guys what happened yeah what I, happened I, it goes actually, so quickly hey we, we need <laughs> to switch to a joe rogan format where we just go for four hours till we get absolutely everything out of you uh, yeah and, and, the, law, the law students listening you know if you had one 
pointer or one anecdote yeah. to share with someone that's in law school listening to this podcast right now and what they should be thinking about on their pursuit of a great career and a good life, um, what would you say to them? Look, keep having hope about the future because 10 or 15 years ago, people weren't doing what we're doing on this podcast and talking about the future of law. I think for the law students of today who are going to be the partners or the senior leaders of the legal profession of tomorrow in 10 or 15 years, you are going to enter a very different landscape. The second thing I would say to them is be unapologetic as you study the law about having a client-centric focus to the way that the law applies to the client. And yep, we all know amazing lawyers who go on to be on, on the High Court or the Supreme Court or whatever it is, who are great lawyers in the clinical sense of practicing the law, and that's fantastic. But those people uh, are the one percenters who do really well at what they do. But to my mind, being a good lawyer is about having a lens that you look through, which is about the client, the end user in relation to it. And whether your interest is in family law, whether your interest is in international law, whether your interest is in tort law or contract law or whatever it is, you're always going to have a customer. Yeah. And if you can focus on that as you make your way through your studies and you can ask questions of your lecturers and professors about, okay, how does this work in practice? And you can look to subjects that you do along the way that might help you to have a growth mindset rather than a fixed mindset around the way that the law is delivered, then you are going to be a really successful lawyer and there will be a place for you, which is something other than being a goose that lays seven hours worth of eggs every day. For, for the partners. Yeah. And actually just to jump on that, I will double down on that even further. I speak with many clients every single day, actually, ironically, more than when I was actually a practicing lawyer. And I will tell you this, if you give a damn, if you care and actually make that felt with your client, you will have a list of clients so long, you won't even know what to do with it. It's just, mm -hmm. there's such a lack of empathy for, again, not for all lawyers. And I'm not trying to cast this across the entire profession, but in general, people want to feel heard. And if you can do that and actually care and actually deliver that value, uh, you will have a, you'll have a client for life and they'll be telling all their friends too. So I, I couldn't agree more that that's probably the best career advice that I think I would be able to give at this point. And, and you'll, and you'll have a fulfilling career. Exactly. You know, there's a, you'll have a fulfilling career. There is absolutely a place for you have interests outside of the law, embrace that, do that. Um, when you're a slave to a timesheet seven or eight hours a day and doing at 70 or 80 hours a week to make up that time because you know that you're inefficient, you've only got so many hours a day. When you come into a profession and you pick a job that means that you don't need to do that, it, it frees up so much time to look at your outside interests. So that's what I would, I would say. Don't listen to the doomsday uh, people. Let's have some hope in relation to it. And, and it's not blind hope. It's actually hope that exists on the basis of a structure. But but what Canada needs to do, in my opinion, if you don't mind me saying this, what Canada should explore is giving choice, yes. giving choice to firms to, to be the master of their own destiny in relation to the way that they structure the business of the law. 
have an iron fist, perhaps in a velvet glove, but an iron fist in relation to conduct, have an iron fist in relation to the standards that are set for practitioners and the way that they conduct their businesses. Absolutely, we have to be protective of that as a profession. No problem with that. But come on, give these guys some hope that, that there can be some flexibility in the future to structure their businesses in a way that's going to mean clients get a better delivery of, of services and which helps to ensure that the future of the legal profession is bright. How can you not get on board with that? I have nothing to add. That was, I think we got our beautiful, a beautiful way to, to end the, yeah. end the podcast. Oh. It's, it, honestly, Nathan, yeah. you, you and Mitch just, yeah. I resonate so closely with when it comes to seeing our profession as it is today, seeing the things that we think could make it better from a regulatory and a service delivery perspective, but also see there being hope. And just from our experiences with good lawyer, over the last couple of years, there are so many lawyers out there that want this, yeah. that love to be able to help people that weren't able to access, you know, services for their, for their new business before and feel a great joy in that side of it, but also love the fact that a lot of the stress is taken off and they can focus on being lawyers as opposed to wearing 12 different hats every day. So the regulatory environment is, is challenging, certainly. But I have no doubt that you're going you're gonna to find a good lawyer down in Australia one of these days. <laughs> it's great to catch up, guys. I, I'm always so chuffed and always have a pep in my step after we chat. It's really nice to see you. If you enjoyed this episode be sure to check out goodlawyer.ca slash podcast where you'll find every episode along with the show notes and resources you can also sign up for good lawyers newsletter that keeps you up to date on all the info and tools you need to turn your business into a rocket ship until next time we hope you have a great week